I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I am, yeah, I'm grateful and honored and humbled to be with you all today as we get ready to, yeah, preach God's word. I'm grateful because God's word is true, and it gives us hope, even when it says things that are sometimes hard for us to grasp. And so I pray that as we spend time here and read God's word, that we would be reminded that it's just that, that as we look into God's word, it's God speaking. The way that we preach here at the church is we're constantly just trying to pull out what God has placed in here. So we would encourage y'all to take out your Bibles and follow along with us. If you don't have it, the words will be there on the screen so you don't have any excuse. Let's pray. So glad to be with you. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, and uh, we just want to say that we're thankful, God. We are thankful that you are a God that is a creator, God. You created the earth, the ground that we're on right now, and you created the skies and the stars and the moon, Lord. You created the distance in between, uh, partly to help us grasp what exactly you mean when you say, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts. Would you remind us, God, that you're wise in a way that we're not wise? So when we don't grasp fully what you say, help us to realize that it because we're not as wise as you are, Father. Lord, when we disagree or when we want to push back against something that you say, help us to realize that it's because our faith is little and it's weak, Father, would you grow our faith? We shrink back from doing the things that you've called us to remind us that it's because our courage is lacking. Would you give us the courage and the boldness to trust you, Father? So we pray for understanding. We pray for the gift of faith. And we pray for courage. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray all these things. There's probably not a bigger conversation that goes on in the world that we're in right now um, than the conversation of race and the divisions and all the stuff that it's brought. In this last political election, we saw so much division brought in a country that is supposed to be very united. And so here's what can take place. When we constantly hear about the negative effects of division and the positive effects of unity, what can take place is that we can slowly start to give unity and division these absolute values. As if in the story of life, unity is the good guy and division is the bad guy. And here's what can take place we can find ourselves in a place where we start to attribute to unity. We look at it as if it's a virtue and we maintain it at all costs, that that's the highest thing that we can yearn for. And so we look at any semblance of division or separation as something that's bad. And I think that if we do this, we'll miss out on what unity and division are. 
at the end of the day, they are not virtues or vices like we've talked about weeks before. They are vehicles. Both of them are a means to an end. So if I'm to say, is unity a good or a bad thing, you would have to say, well, it depends. It depends on what it is that we're unifying around. Unity is not always to be encouraged any more than division is to always be avoided. And this is not just true in the world that we live in. As we talk about spiritually, specifically as it relates to the church of God as a whole, I want you to understand unity maintained at all costs is likely going to be one of the things that leads to the church of God losing its power and authenticity. The vision that's not only helpful, but it's necessary if the church is ever going to add to those that are a part of this church and multiply its influence in the world. Division is not always to be treated as something to mourn over. It is something that leads to our very joy. And so I say all of that because today we're going to take a break from things that we've preached through, and we're going to talk through this concept called church discipline. How many of y'all have heard that word or heard that term before? How many of y'all have ever actually been in a church where it's been preached on? How many of you have been in a church where it's actually been practiced? It's the minority of the folks in the room, but it's clear as day in, in God's word. It's something that's heavy. It's something that we as a church are finding ourselves in the midst of right now. So we thought that it was important that as we talk about it, we remind the church as a whole, though it is a very hard thing, it's something that God has provided to us that's meant to be done with hope. It's heavy. But the reason why we take time to do that here is because so many of us that find ourselves here in this room have been in church and so many of us have friends that aren't in this room because they've been in church and they have stories and they've been frustrated by the hypocrisy that they've seen. That you watch any black movie and one thing that you'll see is they always have scenes of the church. And when they bring up the church, they got that one creeping preacher. And what takes place is it's this, it's this thing where so many of us don't look at that and are shocked. We look at that and say, I know a church like that. And I know folks that know a church like that, and so they'll never step foot into a church again. And so what takes place is as a result, and I want you to hear this, it's not just that sin is present in a church. Sin will be present in churches because all of us in here are sinners. But it's when sin is permitted and allowed in a church. It's when sin goes unaddressed. It's when sin is just seen as the normal way of life and people get hurt and families get ruined and nobody says anything that people see a picture of God that's false, 
but they don't want that God. They don't know that it's false. Or people see a picture of God that allows folks to come in and to pray on the weak, and they're attracted to be a part of a church like that because they themselves want to pray. And what we're saying is God has provided us a means in his word to protect the church as a whole, to lead the sinner not just to be ashamed, but to be assured of the work that God has done in them and to present a beautiful picture of Christ to the world. But it comes with a certain amount of division. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As you turn there, I just want to set a little bit of the context. Paul is writing this letter to a young church, and this young church is a church that has grown. It's full with a lot of people that are gifted and talented and exceptional. And as this church grows, what takes place is there's starting to be these divisions that find themselves in the church. People are measuring their worth and spirituality by the giftedness that they have. And so Paul spends the first four chapters of the book trying to cement this one point that comes in 1 Corinthians 1.10, and it says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The first four chapters of the book is Paul saying, hey, church, unify. Y'all all need to be one. The divisions that you have are senseless. And then after he drives that point in for the first four chapters, Paul said, y'all get that? All right, chapter five, somebody's got to go. First Corinthians five, here's what I want y'all to see. What's going to be plain here in the text and what we're going to cement on or what we're trying to drive home is this point. The purity of the church is the priority of God's church. The purity of the church is the priority of God's church. We unify, yes, but not at all costs. We unify around the purity that God means to bring in his church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's going to do four things. He starts off with a rebuke. He's going to tell somebody that they need to be removed. He's going to say that the church needs to be renewed. And then lastly, he's going to reinforce that point. Rebuke, remove, renew, reinforce. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2 starts off and says this. Paul, writing this from Ephesus, an eight-day journey by sea, saying, yo, these are the things that I hear about your church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The purity of God's church is priority of God's church. This begins with a a rebuke. Make no mistake about Paul's tone. He comes in and he says, look, I'm an eight days journey from y'all. There is no Twitter, Facebook, cell phones. This traveled 
And what's being reported about your church is this. It's not just that there's sin there. Paul brings up this sin and he, he says, man, first of all, it's this sin that even the pagans would look at and they gag at what goes on in your, your church. It's one thing, the church in the world will always disagree about certain values, right? That's, that's, uh, that's not it. The world that we live in scoffs and laughs at and is upset and disgusted by the way that we view marriage, family, purity. This is not that. Paul's saying that the church looks at y'all, or, or the world looks at this church, and they're beating you at your own game. Y'all are supposed to be the ones that set this moral standard and even people that are on the outside that are immoral look at your church and they're disgusted because apparently there's this guy that finds himself in the church, professes to be Christian, and yet he's sleeping with his stepmother and everybody in the church knows and nobody does anything. Verse 2, Paul says this, and you are arrogant. Y'all are boasting for some reason, maybe because you think that you're showing him grace, that it's this live and let live. It's not in ignorance. It's not that these people are hard of hearing. Paul's concerned with the arrogance, that they're hard-hearted. The problem is not just that sin is there. Sin finds itself in a church. The problem is not just that it's present, it's that it's permitted. We in the church, we are sinners of the worst sense. We're not trying to deny that. What Paul's saying is the problem is the attitude that they have. They're letting it stay there. And Paul immediately calls for this rebuke. This is not the book of Romans where Paul spends 11 chapters trying to build out what Christianity is, and then in the 12th chapter says, therefore, in light of all of what God has done, y'all need to do this. This is Paul saying things have gotten to be so bad that we're not going to build up like that. Here's what needs to be done. This person needs to be removed from among you. You can't let things go on and let this person still think that he's a Christian. As we start off our time, I want you all to know this, that sometimes God's word says things that are hard. And what we don't want to do ever, as we've talked about before, is apologize for something that God does or commands unapologetically. To do so is to make ourselves more compassionate than God. And when we do that, there is an arrogance that tells people, if you tell people that you are more compassionate than God, you will lead many people away from a God that gives grace and mercy into you. And what we're saying is that we don't want to do that. If it's hard, then we want to plumb the depth of the word and try to understand what it is that God is saying. We soften or Uh, apologize for things that are here, but we try to get God's heart in all of this. And it takes courage and it takes us hearing. And so I want you to know, if you're here right now and you 
this first part and you say, see, that's the problem that I have with the church. The church is so judgmental and they try to draw these lines in the sand. I'm going to ask you to do two things. Just right where you are, just pray that God would just give you the grace to listen, to hear from his word. I want you to be uh, brutal in the way that you hold me to, to say, wait a minute, I don't think that that's what this says. I'm just trying to lay but I, this is what this says. That's why the words here are on the screen so that y'all can track along. But pray that God would give us the grace to hear that we would look at the book and we would be reminded that God's good in the words that he speaks to us. And here's what we'll see. That the act of actually doing this reminds us that at the end of the day, we as Christians are in the business of caring for people's souls. As a pastor, I think often, not just about this life, but the next life. We think often about the fact that if Hebrews 13 is true, one day, myself, Richard, Tripp, and Mo will have to stand in front of God and not just give an account for how we lived our lives, but how we cared for the 169 people that find themselves on the rolls of this church. It's something that causes us great angst. And so as we sit and as we share this, I want you to know that at the end of the day, our concern is for souls, not just this life, but the next life. And I want you to see what takes place here in this text. Paul and our Lord never discourages people towards faithfulness. It's not just you should be ashamed of yourself, you should. No, 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 no. What God does is he wants to encourage us towards faithfulness. He wants to remind us that this very act is something that's filled with hope. And so the thing that we're going to see is that church discipline, when done rightly, when the church maintains the purity of God's word, it provides two things. Hope for those that stray and joy for those that stay. Hope for the straying. Verses 3 to 5, read with me. Paul says this. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. That word right there should throw out whatever misconceptions we have about Matthew 7 when Christ says, judge not, lest ye be judged. If you think that that means that we aren't supposed to judge those that are a part of the church, what we'll see here is that Paul's going to say at the end, no, 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 no. We have a unique role in that we ought to hold those that are a part of the church up to the standard that God has laid out for them. We'll get more to that later. Verse 4, Paul says this. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Removing somebody from the church Somebody who finds themselves in this open, obvious, serious, unrepentant sin. Paul says this actually is the best means of the hope of salvation 
one day for this very person that strayed. It provides hope for the straying. We see that there in verse 5 where he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Here's what I want us to see, though. Paul's going to do two things. He's going to talk about the manner in which they, they should be removed and the motivation. Paul says it's serious. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, as an apostle, one from outside, I have cast my judgment. Y'all need to get this man, and he needs to be out. Paul says this in verse 4. When you are assembled... In the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you, plural, you all are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his body, or, uh, so, so that his spirit may be saved on the last day. What he says is this, as Richard talked about last week, this is a duty and a responsibility that lies not in one man, not in a group of men, but in the church as a whole. It's something that's hard. It's something that will take the church as a whole, the authority of saying who the, the church affirms and who the, the, the church denies as an authentic profession of faith. This is something that lies in the church as a whole. And Paul doesn't usurp this authority for himself, but he says this. No, listen, when the church comes and you're gathered, what? In the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you know what that produces inside all of us? A humility. Because as all of us come in, we are reminded that the only reason that we're here is because of what Jesus did for our sin. Nobody in here is better than anybody else. Nobody in here is any less of a sinner. Nobody has a heart that's made up of different stuff. But when we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus, what we're saying is we are gathering to rejoice and sing and pray and to reflect not on the work that we did to get to God, but on the work that God did to get to us. We're reminded of the fact that the most important, that the ultimate, that the most eternal distinction made between sinners are sinners that are repentant and sinners that are unrepentant. And in humility, we're reminded of what God himself did for us. That as we come as a church, each of us sits and has to reflect on the way that God brought us to himself. That as we come and gather, as my wife and I sat and had dinner with friends last night, and we reflected on the work that God had did in my life, we don't come with great pride. I don't come as somebody that made the right choice and chose God. I come with great humility as somebody that grew up in a Christian home like really Christian, like dad was a pastor Christian, like we were at church every Sunday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday Christian, like we sang in the gospel choir when we couldn't sing Christian. We heard the gospel preached, the actual gospel preached. And it took me 
being thousands of miles from home, face dirt, face down in the dirt with guns pointed to the back of my head before I realized how empty the idols were in my life. That's how broken and how messed up that I was. That's how far that I was from the Lord. So when we come in and we have to find ourselves in a place where we do this, we never do it in pride. Because we remember the lengths that God brought us from. That to do this is something that causes great mourning. It's nothing that we do gladly. It's with people that lived in my house, in a pastor's house for two years. A young guy that came into my house as, as a Christian. And two years later, after all the stuff that I poured into them, after my wife and I gave our lives, he comes to a place where he turns his back on everything that God has done for him. You don't come to a place like that proud. You come with great weeping because you're reminded There are souls at stake. But we don't just come to this with humility, although that is the posture that we have. We come to this with great hope. Look here at the end of verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus... And my spirit is present. Listen, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Here's what he means when he says you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He's not saying that he hopes that this man would die. He's saying that the church is to come together And to let this person who finds themselves in this open, unrepentant rebellion against God to say, hey, we as a church, we are here to hold people accountable to the professions of faith that they made. We're not here to hold people hostage. If this is where you want to go, then we with tears in our eyes say, you can do that. You can go and embrace that. But don't think of yourself as a Christian. And the hope is that we would give them the great gift of desperation. That you know that verse where Christ says, it's better that you would, uh, or or where he would say that what sense does it make for somebody to gain the whole world and to lose their soul? That what he's saying right here is, we're going to let them do what they want in life. Going to entrust them, not to our great God in a sense, but we're going to let them pursue the path that they want to pursue with the hopes that they would lose everything that they saw as valuable in this world, that they would gain their soul. Listen, and this is the hope that in doing what's so counterintuitive, that our God would use that to save them. And when we're reminded that we do that in the power of the Lord Jesus, we are reminded that God is not fighting with Satan. Good and evil are not at war. 
Satan, this sin, their pathway, is only a useful tool to get them to an end when they get to the end of themselves and they turn and put their trust in in Christ. Here's how powerful God is. That Satan, from the beginning of the Bible in the fall, thought that with his cunning and with his creativity that he could ruin Adam and Eve. But do you know what took place? In his attempts to make God look like a villain, the only thing that he did was provide an opportunity for God to show just how gracious that he is. You and I are here today because we rejoice in the depths of God's love that we get to experience in a way that first Peter says angels long to, to look at. And that was God using Satan as tool to show how glorious he is. The book of Judges in your Bible is full of the people of God turning and going their own way. And every time that they turn and repent and turn to God, do you know what God does? Forgives them of their sin and saves them to show that this God comes. And he comes to repair even self-inflicted wounds. You go to the book of Job. And do you know what you see? Satan doesn't come and talk first. God talks first. God incites Satan himself. God says, hey, have you seen Job? And Satan bites. And he, and he comes and says, Job only praises you because you give him everything. And do you know what God does? Uses Satan and evil as a tool to show that this great God that we serve is better than life, and he's sufficient even in suffering. God is not dueling with Satan. The God that we serve is powerful and sovereign. And so what he's saying is that as we let somebody go their own way and don't hold them hostage, it's not that we give up hope. But we do it in hope that God will use the failure of what they've gone after to bring them to the end of themselves. Like the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 when he wants to go far from home and they let him go. And he spends his money on loose living and prostitutes. And it says there, when he came to the end of himself, he came to his senses and reflected on the goodness of his father, and he turned and came home. That's our hope. But it's hard. It's hard because God's mercy isn't always comfortable, but it's always better than the alternative. The alternative this live and let live, don't judge, we're all fallen. Do you know all that that does? It's a breeding ground for people to be self-deceived in a profession of faith that they've made. That a church that never holds people to the standard that God intends for them 
is the best place to raise up false converts, the type of people that in Matthew 7 find themselves standing in front of God on the last day and says, God, look at all the stuff that I did for you. And God himself says, depart from me. I never knew you. It requires us saying, though I would never think to do this, Lord, we as a church have to come together Actually, let someone go from our care to experience the life that they want outside of the community that you've granted in hope for the strain that they would come back to you. But this takes courage. It takes boldness. It takes a conviction. It takes being reminded of the fact that God's ways are higher than our ways. It takes being willing to do things that are unpopular and offend people. But it takes saying, I would rather be obedient to our Lord and do the hard things and reconcile with people in heaven than to have people that think well of me that find themselves in hell one day. That's the confidence that it takes. And this is what God is leading us to, to remind us that we do all of this in hope. And that as we do this, we remind ourselves that present failure, it's not final. That as long as people have breath in their lungs, there is an opportunity for God to turn them to repentance And so we do all that we can, all that's in our power to see this hope take place. And sometimes the best thing that we can do is to let folks go and to grant them the gift of desperation and hopes that God would bring them to faith. This is why, as a church, the process that we go through to have folks join and to be a part of this church It's not meant just to create a club of insiders and outsiders. That's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to make sure that as we sit down and as we talk about what it means to be a part of a church, that people understand what it means to be a Christian. And so as we sit down and talk, there is no big test that you have to pass. We're just trying to find out if people have actually turned from their sin and turned towards God. There was a time where um, early on in the life of our church, there was somebody that came in and they're like, man, we want to be a part of a church. We love the community and all the the stuff that is going on here. Um, And so as we sit down and like uh, one of the pastors said, hey, tell me your story. When was it that you saw this change in your life, that you turned from your sin And you turned towards God and you said, God, I want you to dictate the way that I live my life. I trust in what Christ did on the cross for me. And now my life is your life. Use this as you will. And they said back, what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, that time where you put your trust in the Lord. And they sit there and say, I haven't done that yet. I, I, My life, the way that I want to live, I do the things that I want to do. I try not to be but I really dictate what I do with my life. And then he sat there and just said, well, 
Let me explain to you what Christianity is. It's saying that the way that I want to live my life is going to lead me off of a cliff. That we all are sinners and we run from God, but in God's grace, Jesus came down and lived the life that we could not live, and he died to pay the penalty that you and I earned for our sin. And so for all of us that just step back and say, I no longer want to live for myself, I accept what Christ did for me, and now I want to spend my life pursuing Christ. And though this body that I'm in still has leaks and cracks and sin's going to find its way back in, if I stumble and fall, I get up and I'm reminded that Christ paid for that sin. And so I turn from that sin to the best that I can, and, and I pursue him, and I run. And they said, I'm not really at a place right now where I want to do that. But I love the community and the feel that I get from this church. And I want to be a part. That at that point, the most loving thing that could have been done is what was done. And it said, well, hey, we would love for you to keep coming and to hear about what God says about his word. However... In order to be a, a member of this church, we unify around what God has done for us. And if you don't have that yet, then we wouldn't want to make you feel safe and assured we are. That's why we go through such great lengths to present the gospel and to ensure that we have a church full of those that are Christian. Let me move on. I'm running out of time. He provides more than just hope for the strain. It's not just the strain that are in trouble when sin goes unaddressed in the church. There's a danger for those that stay. But when the church fulfills its purpose, what it does is it actually provides joy for those that are staying. Read with me verse 6. Paul says this, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the uh, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here's what he does, because that can be confusing for us. Leaven was this amount of yeast that was put into bread. And it was this yeast that fermented. So they put that into bread. It would cause the bread to rise. And then the next batch, you take some of the fermented yeast and you put that into a new loaf and it rises and on and on and on. The danger is that sometimes... It could ferment to the point where it could cause an infection. And what he's saying is just a little bit of this, if it's not weeded out, could be brought in. And now every loaf that it spreads in has the danger to bring harm. Here's a more contemporary picture of that. There was a movie that came out years ago called Contagion. Y'all seen that movie? It starts off with this disease that came out of nowhere and it spread and like half of the human race was, was killed, wiped out. Yeah, a real uplifting movie. Wiped out. 
what took place is at the end of the movie, it rewinds and it shows how the whole thing got started. That what took place was there was this bat in a tree. A bulldozer came through, knocked over the tree. So the bat flies out of the tree and makes a nest in a banana tree. Another bulldozer comes through and knocks over that tree. So the, uh, the bat flies across this pig pen and drops a piece of fruit from his mouth. The, the pig eats that fruit. The next scene, you see this cook slaughtering this pig. Well, he goes out to meet this lady, and he wipes off his hands on a shirt, and he goes and he shakes her hand. She contracts the disease, and then it just shows on the, the bus in a conversation. This thing spread, and, and, and the point of it all was that it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. And the deceitfulness of sin convinces us that just a little bit won't hurt, that we can just let this thing slide. And, and so what Paul is trying to bring out here is, no, no, listen, right? He, he brings up this point uh, uh, at the end of verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival not with old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Throughout the Bible, what took place is there were these times where the temple of God got defiled, and so what would take place is these kings would rise up. Josiah, Hezekiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and they would cleanse out the temple and what would take place was it would be a cause of great rejoicing. Why? Because now an accurate picture of God could be displayed. And, and so what he says here is, you know, this is the joy for, for the church here that stays. That the church that actually fulfills and does what God calls it to do, that what takes place is when we're faithful and when we remove those, and we're going to talk about what that means here at the end, then what takes place is we present an accurate picture of God to the world. And it is a picture of a God that is pure, a God that is holy, a God that protects, but it's also a God that forgives. Be because what takes place, if the goal is just to purify, to get rid of all sin, nobody would be a part of the church. But what this is, is a picture that we have a God that is both pure and holy. That it's not meant to make those of us that are part of the church ashamed. But it is to provide an assurance of our salvation. That we continue to pursue the purity, the very thing that God himself had saved us for. As that takes place, we come into rooms like this. And we celebrate the right things. We rejoice not just in what God has done for us, but the fact that God has continued to make us like. There's this book called Democratic Religion. And what takes place is it's this book that just has minutes of Baptist meetings 
throughout the years. And the funny thing about this book is it records instances in which the church actually took a stand and disciplined its church members. And the funny thing about the book is you would think that a church that does that would shrink in size, but the more that the church was faithful to do that, the more that the church continued to grow and advance in its witness in the world because it presented a picture that there is a God that is concerned not just with purity, but with the protection of his name. That people found themselves in a church, not where they were scared to confess their sin, but where they felt free to confess their sin and they felt like they didn't have to hide it because it was in the open confession and admittance that all of them could be reminded of the great things that God has done and they could pursue God. Shane Kidd is a guy that's here at the church and I sat and I I talked to him and I asked him before we said this. um, A few years ago before this church was here and we... uh, Some of us were still a part of Blueprint Church. Shane found himself with roommates. Shane was low on funds. And so what he did for a few months was as his roommates would would, uh, pay him so that he could pay their bills, Shane stole that money and used it for things that he needed to use it on. And it's not just like one or two months, but he racked up thousands of dollars that he owed them. Shane was caught. It came to the light. Shane was confronted. And it was at that point where folks didn't just let things slide that Shane repented of his sin. And he was reminded of the grace of God, and that the Lord could renew people that were thieves. And Shane, of his own accord, felt like, man, I really want to share this with folks so that those that find themselves in a place where they're hiding their sin and they feel like that they can't confess it can be reminded that the open admission and confession actually brings joy because we're reminded of what God has done. And Shane did it, and what took place was he had to bear the consequences of his sin. He had to get another job, and he had to work hard. But do you know what? He didn't have to bear those consequences alone. There was a community, and we could rejoice. And I could tell you countless stories. I talked to Erica and LB this past week. Ten years ago, we're at a church in Denton. Erica and LB are dating, she comes up and she shares, we're dating, we slipped and we fell, I'm pregnant. As we talked to them and saw the repentance for the sin they had, this is not a scarlet letter where you brand folks based on the sin that they did. But what took place was they said, we know that we sinned against God. We want to repent and put or trust in him and we want to walk with him, do you know what took place? A community came around and supported them. Katoya and my wife lived with her and was there with her for the birth of their child. 
They've been married for the past nine years and have three beautiful boys. And do you know more than that? They have a testimony. They rejoice in what God has done. So anybody else that finds themselves in that same place, it's, no, 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 don't hide it. Don't keep it inside. Don't run. Don't sweep it under the rug. Bring it to the light. Let's be reminded of the grace of what God has done. Let's bear that together. Let's rejoice as a community as sin is not hidden, but it's shown for what it is. And it's dealt with by the blood of what God is, by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Last point, and I'm going to close quickly here. Verse 9. The purity of the church is the priority of God's church. It gives hope to the strain, joy for those that remain or stay. As we constantly remember, our focus is on the family. Verse 9. He's going to reinforce this point. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. As Paul says, I want you to stay away from these types of folks. He's not saying just stay away from folks that have this, because in order to do that, you would have to go to another planet, because everybody has some of this inside of them. But Paul says this, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What he means there is, no, no, listen. Your concern is not trying to be the moral police of the world. That is a weight that the church can't carry. That is a weight that will dilute the effectiveness of the world. That as we go out to the world as a whole, we are not appealing to them to behave with the shared values that we have. We go out to the world and share with them the values that we have and plead for them to come in. But he's saying, no, no, listen, you have a unique responsibility with those who would call themselves Christians, but yet their lives are characterized by these things. That it's not like they're pursuing the Lord and they get tripped up by these things, but they are actually pursuing all of these things. And sometimes they'll kind of turn and look back, but, but the pattern, the way that they live their life is in pursuit of these things. Paul says your duty, your job, your obligation, and in this sense, is not even to eat with such a one. That does not mean that you shun folks, that you say, no, nah, I can't be with you, or you can't come in. We want people that are far from God to hear the gospel. It's not us standing at the front door and policing who comes into the front door. All right, I want you all to hear that. But what he is saying is that collectively, as a church, you need to remind this person that the pattern of their life is not what Christianity looks like. And you need to make it clear when he says not eat, we think of meals like the Passover. And what took place was when the Passover was first had, it was a meal, but it differentiated a people. 
that there were those that ate that reflected, that put their trust in God, and those that did not eat were those that were outside of uh, uh, what it looks like to trust in God. And Paul's saying, your main point is to make it abundantly clear that so long as they hold on and pursue their sin, that they're free to do that, but they can't do that and call themselves Christian. Now, I want you to know this. As we do this as a church, it is not us making an authoritative judgment. It is not us condemning anybody. We don't have that power. God and God alone determines salvation. But it is us saying, based on all that we know about the Lord, we feel it's necessary for us to draw this distinction in order that you would more readily examine your standing with God. Verse 12, Paul says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And again, evil is not just about the presence of sin in somebody's life. We all have the presence of sin. I want you to hear that. When we're drawing this line in the sand, we're talking about the way that a person postures themselves towards their sin. Are they pursuing it? Or are they pursuing Jesus? And we know that sanctification of being made to be like Christ is a slow process. And so we patiently endure or bear with. But we have the courage and the confidence to know that God provides this means to us to provide hope for those that stray, that we would entrust them into the Lord's hands as he uses the desperation that they face that lies at the end of their sin. And it provides joy for those of us that remain. And as God does this, it's done for the good of the sinner, the person that finds themselves deceived by the sin in their lives. It's for the good of the church that we are reminded in humility that we are a community of sinners, but we're a community of repentant and forgiven sinners. And we constantly want to care for folks' souls and push them to trust in Jesus. And ultimately, it's done for the glory of our Lord that at the end of the day, an accurate picture of Christ is presented to the world so that as people choose to accept or reject, they choose based on an accurate picture of a God that's holy and just, but a God that is gracious and forgiving. I pray that it's abundantly clear Especially, and right now, I'm speaking to those that are a part of this church, that have joined, that you feel it as your responsibility to care for those that are in here. I pray that what this does is that it reminds you that you have an actual and real responsibility to care for people's souls. And God forbid, but one day, 
we're going to have to do this as a church and just make it clear. And I pray that when that day comes, that it wouldn't feel like something cold that takes place from a church full of people that don't know one another. I pray that feeling this weight, that you would be reminded that even though I can't know personally everybody that's a part of this church, I can do the important work of praying for each person by name as the days and the months go on so that as this takes place, it's not a cold raise of the hand, but it's filled with mourning and tears. And we pray that as we do this, that God's glory would be seen as clear, that the world that we live in wouldn't mock the church of God as those that don't protect those that are his. And I pray that God will give us the courage and the boldness and the trust and the faith to do something that's hard but done in hope. The purity of the church is the priority of God's church. Let's pray. Father, at the end of the day, our trust and our hope is in your word and your word alone. Uh, We know that we aren't wise. We know that we don't have the power to save anybody, uh, Lord, but by your power, uh, we know that we have the grace, uh, that you've provided us the grace to be obedient to the things that you've called us to do. And God, above all else, Lord, I pray that you would prove to us that you're gracious, that you care, that you love us, Uh, And that this is the best means to win those that find themselves deceived by sin. That it is the best means for us to rejoice as a church. And it's the best means for us to present an accurate picture of you to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.